Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The basketball player has become more of a cultural icon than ever before. And I think people, in the same way that they would kind of look to the kingdom to pull inspiration from how to live their lives Mm -hmm. and what the rules and everything of the society was then, we see more and more now. Today, I am joined by Victor Solomon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the time. Uh, maybe for those people who aren't familiar with some of your work, can you just share a little bit more about yourself and, and what you do? Sure. So I do a project called Literally Balling, where we take techniques and mediums and materials that have been historically reserved for the elite and use them to embellish and elevate basketball icons. Got you. And... How did you get started in all of that? Where did uh, you pick up that interest? You know, it's like very sort of long and organic, arbitrary story. I grew up in Boston, and you pretty much just get handed a Celtics and Patriots jersey when you come out of the womb there. So the birthright. Totally. So sport had always been a big part of my life. And for me personally, as like a brown kid coming out of Boston, um, you know, a lot of around a lot of like you know, Irish kids, Jewish kids, Italian kids, if I felt like a big outcast and it was not a very, I don't know if you spent much time in Boston, but it's not a great not place really. to grow up as yeah. a brown kid. So, uh, but the thing that was amazing to me was that on the basketball court, everyone had the same purpose. Yeah. So it was this great equalizer and level playing field. Um, and particularly because it didn't require anything Equipment-wise, or like ice time, or anything, you could just walk up and start playing. Was that what got you kind of interested? Was that there was no barrier to entry that you kind of just walked onto a court and it just felt natural and at home for you? Totally. I mean, the thing that I really wanted there was this sporting goods store between my house and school, and I remember I used to walk past it every day, and they had this like incredible goalie outfit for hockey, mm-hmm. and I really I was dying to play hockey, but it's so expensive, and. We didn't have a lot of money, but basketball, you could kind of just go up to. Um, So, you know, forgetting any of like the race context, just from like a sort of affordability and like socioeconomic place, it was the only thing that we could participate in. So for that, it became a big thing. And then once I was there, I was like, oh, shit, we're all kind of doing the same thing. We're after the same goal. And I thought that that was a cool moment to like... Mm -hmm. Get everyone together. Build Did you a play organized basketball, like uh, youth yeah. programs? Yeah. Um, so there was a couple things. There was like a summer yeah. league at this outdoor situation, and then during the winter in Boston, obviously it's break, yeah, yeah. so we had an indoor uh, like pickup league that was pretty rugged. But yeah, uh, but it was a great way to like to build a community, and I, I that always stuck with me and. You know, a long way from there, I moved across the country. I was living in San Francisco. I was working as a filmmaker, director, and was feeling a little bit frustrated with how, going back to barriers of entry, how many people it takes to mobilize to realize a vision. So I was kind of looking for a little bit of an outlet just as a personal sort of like creative sidebar. And San Francisco has a really long tradition of stained glass artists. And I kind of just stumbled into a stained glass studio one day 
and met all these how old timers. How do you stumble into a stained glass studio? Honestly, it's in San Francisco. It's a very San Francisco story, but just in on you know 24th Street, there was a stained glass studio, and I just got this picture on my mind of the backboard for the sport that had been with me my whole life, and just celebrating it in that way. Hadn't really thought anything further than just making a sort of picture like that. Um, so I'm, I kind of walk into this place, and it's this incredible, like, cheer-style hangout for these 80-plus-year-old retired guys that have been doing stained glass their whole life. And they're in there shooting the shit, breaking balls, whatever. Um, I come in, the youngest person by half, and they were so excited to have someone be curious about the craft and yeah. apprentice under those guys for about a year. And they taught me everything about how to do it. And it's the st- process of stained glass is the same since the 20s. Um, and it's incredibly technical and complicated to speak, do. I know it's complicated. Can you speak more to that? Like what that process is like with stained sure. glass? I mean, the short version of it is that stained glass is you're putting together a puzzle that you're also building all the pieces of, but you're doing it with something that's like incredibly delicate and incredibly fragile. Mm and really brittle and like will cut your fingers open and all this stuff and then you're joining it together with like lead and like um, and solder and all this stuff so it's like the same technique that um they've been doing for windows since the 20s yeah. is what these guys put me on to and how did was that something that you were interested in in some way when you were younger or did this was this just totally random to stumble into this um i mean they were sort of pursuing some sort of creative outlet yeah. has always been part of me in one way or another um and this was kind of just an, an outlet for sort of my frustration creatively um and it's wild because, you know, I had this path and this trajectory that I was pursuing. And like I said, just kind of spent a year making this thing just for yeah. fun and just posted it on my personal social social media page and got a ton of people asking about it and got some press off of that. Um, it's funny. We're looking at Slam Magazine where Aaron, yeah. Aaron Phillips just went over there. Mm-hmm. Um, he was working with Complex at the time and reached out about doing some press. And then that just parlayed wow. into yeah. super fast into, you know, I think maybe four or five months later, I showed at Art Basel in Miami. And then a few months after that, I had a show, a solo show in New York. And then a few months after that, I had a solo show in L.A. So, so you, we just started rolling You were just really doing fast. it by yourself, though. You didn't. Totally. I mean, you, you had the apprenticeship and people kind of showed you the craft a little bit but then you were on your own making and, and creating yeah I mean it's very much just been kind of a one man band operation do you like that process kind of being alone and in your thoughts and, and being able to really like bring your vision to life or, or do you kind of sometimes enjoy the collaboration of working with others it's nice to have both and I think the more I've pursued the project and the project has kind of unfurled itself yeah. and developed um, organically between then and now. The thing that's been amazing as this project has unfurled between then and now is besides how organically everything has just been rolling, uh, it's revealing more and more of itself to parallel the mm-hmm. discipline of an athlete the whole time. So there are moments where, you know, I'm locked into the studio, solo mission, just grinding on a piece, kind of like in the gym, putting shots up and practicing. And then there's other moments where I have the team in or I'm getting together with, mm-hmm. you know, collaborators or whatever for a moment. Um, so I think it has so many different touch points tying into sport in a way that feels 
very meaningful. But to your question, you know, I've kind of always been a lone wolf guy anyway, so I like having that, but then it's great kind of energizing moment when we can have an exhibition or have an event or an activation that we've built out um, and get to share that stuff with people. So you mentioned that film was what brought you to San Francisco, right, from Boston? Um, not it indirectly? Wasn't fi- not, it, it, it actually, it wasn't film that brought me to San Francisco. It was completely arbitrary. It was... I was like working at some skate shop. I got fired. I was like community college for no reason. And what I was seen, a skate shop in Boston. In Boston, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I just like wasn't really doing shit. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to my friend Kenan's going away party. How old were you during this? I'm time? like just turned eighteen. Okay, right, eighteen. And my friend Kenan had graduated from Northeastern with an engineering degree, and he was moving to San Francisco to work for BART, which is their train mm-hmm. system, which was is super advanced compared to where we were at. Um, but I was at his going away party. I was going to take over his apartment in Boston. And I don't know what came over me, but all of a sudden I was like, you know what? Let me just roll with you guys. I had like $400 and like a mattress and a, like a Sony Vio yeah. computer. You're just like willing to go out Fuck there it. and figure like, it out. I, you know, everything that I had there, which wasn't much, but it kind of just all fell apart at the same time. So I just tagged along on Ken and Strip and moved to San Francisco on a whim. And just kind of like figured it out when I got there. And, and part of figuring it out was, yeah. was enrolling in film school. I was doing some like film stuff back in Boston, but it was very guerrilla. That was your passion at the time. You, yeah. you wanted to be a filmmaker. Sure. Yeah. And then how has that been? Has that been a part of this process for you still? Is that something that you're working towards, you know, getting back to or involving in, in the work that you create? I mean, I think that it's still very much a part of my creative process in general um there's some film projects that i'm trying to get set up right now actually as well so it's still something that i'm excited about and interested in i think i think film the infrastructure of film production that i had been pursuing that whole time set the table for a lot of the processes that i've brought into the things that i'm doing now so um just sort of can you speak, to, sorry, can you speak more to that process yeah, and, and yeah, what yeah. that's like? Can you speak more to that, that process, your creative process? Um, the creative process is, is kind of unique from project to project, and it's something that I've had a lot of fun with because I kind of let the concept for whatever it is that I'm working on dictate what process is most appropriate for it. But I think kind of tapping back to the roots in filmmaking, the sort of infrastructure of how you go through the you know, sort of arduousness of like prep and setting up. Uh, I mean, the the process of making a film yeah. requires such clarity of vision from inception to the final product. And, you know, you can't kind of just like show up and start making a movie. So there's a lot of planning. So there's a lot of intention that needs to go into every yeah. decision that happens from the placement of the camera to the scenic design and the props and everything like that. So there's a very specific measured approach that you need to take to every decision that happens in the process of making a film. And I think that really set the table for all the other things that I'm doing creatively now because it's never just like, oh, let's just make a fucking backboard that looks like this. There's always has to be because of the technical execution part that goes into it and how much effort goes into realizing the vision Mm -hmm. of a piece. um, You're kind of not allowed to have it be arbitrary. Yeah. And I think that that's an important part of storytelling is to be able to 
experience it and contribute to it on a number of different levels that make it mean well. Do you have an example maybe of a, a project that helps highlight that a little bit or like you kind of you had the story you wanted to tell and then the process you went about, you know, telling it, bringing it to life sure. with the court? Yeah. Like, a few years ago, I was actually at Art Basel in Miami and saw this artist whose name escapes me who had created these incredible kind of like transformer style pieces using this ancient Japanese technique called kintsugi. Mm-hmm. Um now, she was using it wrong, but it was like how I learned about yeah. it. Um, but the technique itself is a old Japanese technique about ceramic rejoinery, where if a teapot was broken, rather than that, what they had used to be, what they had used to used to reconstruct these pots were like these big yeah. steel staples, and they looked like shit. <laughs> The other thing that they could do was an adhesive that was invisible, but they thought that it was more important to highlight the imperfection of a piece as part of its formative journey and show that it made it more beautiful than it had been initially. Mm-hmm. Like gave it character and, and a, more of a, a story and absolutely. a past. Totally. And you kind of build on the challenges of your life instead of trying to tuck them under the rug you celebrate them as formative experiences that helped you get to the next plane of your existence so i completely fell in love with that narrative behind that process and the more i thought about it the more i realized how much it parallels the athlete's journey of trying to improve yourself to a level that can get you to the peak that you're trying to reach Um, and all of the challenges and breakdowns and things that happen along the way to help you get to that level. I completely fell in love with this process of Kintsugi and I got together with my friend Brock a few years ago and we made a porcelain basketball that I broke and put back together with the same inspired by the same technique. Mm -hmm. My approach is slightly different, but um, gold dusted resin that rejoined the piece itself. And each one has this kind of unique vein set into it. So that's kind of an example of like we were just talking about of, of kind of the Venn diagram that's important to me where it's like bringing, bringing a storytelling element, bringing a technical contribution to it. And then also tying in the parallels with the athlete's journey and making sure that we're not just doing something with a basketball in it for the sake of doing something with a basketball in it, but that we're trying to contribute to the discourse around the sport. So speaking kind of, again, around basketball, you know, I think you mentioned some of your past experiences with the sport and why it's so important to you. But can you maybe speak even more to that and, and how, you know, what your work is now elevates basketball and, and really, you know, brings that in a, in a entirely different way than you've seen in the past from other artists? Um, I mean, I, we'll skip the T part of it, but I think for me, the thing that, that, that has been amazing is as organically as the stained glass journey began, the more I dove into it and the more I researched and understood the symbolism behind the material and what it meant for medieval times in that um, it's something that was super expensive and still is but for kings and churches and things used to adorn their their castles and buildings with it to show everyone their wealth and power and I think you know in the time that I've been doing this project the 
basketball player has become more of a cultural icon than ever before. And I think people in the same way that they would kind of look to the kingdom at, to pull inspiration from how to live their lives and what the rules and everything of the society was then, we see more and more now everyone's looking to basketball to take those cues sort of aesthetically and now very in a very inspiring way politically with how thoughtful a lot of these guys have been telling their stories. And have you seen that? I mean, you've seen that shift, I imagine, from when you first started trying to create this art and where it is today. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that? So I started the project in 2015. And at that point, I don't feel like the mainstreamness of basketball has yeah. gotten crazy since then. Um, so, I mean, I feel like we were still kind of trailblazing a little mm-hmm. bit of removing the jock versus, yeah, you know, art. Your, your one-dimensional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was kind of like, yeah. there was definitely a, an era where you're like, you watch sports? Yeah. What the fuck? Um, and now it's just like so part of greater culture, which is super inspiring to have had watched that change just in the past five years. I guess I'm also curious because you've worked with a lot of um, kind of bigger name companies and brands that tap you for your vision on basketball. And how is that navigating you know, your opinions and your beliefs and like your storytelling with what they're looking to get out of, you know, what they're looking to get out by tapping into basketball culture? Yeah. Um, working with brands, I've been incredibly fortunate to work with brands. And I think the thing that I've accidentally been very lucky about is having carved out like a very specific and niche, uh, kind of narrow and deep aesthetic when someone comes to me, they kind of just want to let me do my thing, which has been a huge gift. Um, and I didn't even know that I was cultivating this until it started to happen. And I think uh, the the first sort of partnership like this happened. Um, so in 2016, I did a show here in L.A. Mm. And the short version of it is that I just didn't feel comfortable with the way that things ended up with the gallery and after the opening, I basically stole the show back. And what does that what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I had the key to the gallery from the install. Um, the gallerist owed me a lot of money, and I was nervous that uh, if they sold the pieces, that I would never see mm-hmm. the money or never see the pieces yeah. again. Um, there's a longer, sort of gorier version of it, but we'll leave it at that for now. Uh, but I just didn't feel comfortable leaving everything there, so I just mm. went in the day after the opening, got out, stole all my <laughs> shit back, and pushed back to San Francisco where I was still living at the time. And I remember, I remember driving back and feeling pretty discouraged because I, that was the biggest thing I had done at that time, and I wasn't sure what the next move was going to be. And got back to SF. I was working some job at the time to just kind of keep the lights on while I was trying to figure all this stuff out. And I got a call from Gian at Nike LA. Mm -hmm. And they were putting together this event in the Bay to welcome Kevin Durant to the Warriors. And How excited were you when you got that call? Insane. Yeah. I mean, because I was, because I mean, I say the gallery part just to contextualize like how yeah. down I was feeling. Yeah. I was like, well, I guess that was it. Like we had fun. We did a couple of shows. Like, all right, now we need to figure out how to like get back to real life. And then I got the call from Gian, which changed everything. And the kind of getting back to the core of what your question is, the thing that was amazing was, you know, I thought 
that they would want to put a swoosh on everything and like want to put Katie's face on everything yeah. and all that shit. So, you know, he had reached out. He asked if I was interested. Of course, you know, I was um, put together like a presentation on them that like factored yeah. in a bunch of swoosh shit. And to his credit, amazingly, he was like, that, he's like, we don't need any of those logos. It's not what it's about. He's like, what is the story that we're telling? And really planted the seed for that and was a super inspiring way to open up what became a lot of what this journey is with mm-hmm. collaborating with brands to try to tell stories around the sport. And, you know, I was incredibly lucky to have that as my first experience because so many of those other stories, this story ends badly so many yeah. other ways. And if it wasn't for John and the LA team here for Nike, um, you know, who could, who knows what could have fucking happened. But, uh, but that was an amazing thing that kind of set the tone for the collaborations that I've been able to do with brands since then and gave me the confidence when I'll do an all-star weekend project with Levi's or I'll get with Tyler Bleacher Report and do an activation um, or some of the other crazier conversations that are going on right now um, to understand that, you know, they're coming to me for me. And I don't need to. I don't need to go. I don't need yeah. to reach to them. We need to work together. But I don't need to change what I'm doing because they're here for me. So that helped you with your confidence as an artist. But I'm curious, and you can speak more about dealing with the business side of things because, like you said, you're on your own. So where did you get the knowledge to handle those conversations where you know you value your artwork yeah. and the work that you put in, the time and the effort. Yeah. And how do you know how to enter into those conversations with companies that have lawyers and people who are specifically appointed for those conversations? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's I think it's a really important question that no one um, no one has really ever answered. Um, And it's tough because the space is so small. You know, I imagine you'll have a lot of creatives that are listening to this and it's important to understand and have the confidence to know by the time they're calling you, um, you know, you've been on 20 mood boards and you've been involved in 30 conference calls and people are rooting for you on the brand side. Um, and they're coming to you for your expertise. So I think it's important for creatives that are working with brands in this way to have the confidence to know, like, Jake, I'm coming to Bristol because you guys have the sauce that we want, you know? So how do you... The the tough part of it is that it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to, like, the actual nuts and bolts, as you know, of, you know, what things cost. And really, I mean, like... um, I think we're operating in a space where there is no precedent and the precedent that does exist exists with such a few number of people that maybe feel like they're competing with each other. So it might not yeah. be appropriate to like, Hey, let me call, you know, yeah. whoever and see what they charge for this. Definitely. And I think part of navigating that space, the thing that's been really important about navigating a space like that is getting to know guys like you, getting to know people like Josh Vides, but getting to know people that are moving in the space uh, to be able to get advice on things like that. But no, I mean, I wonder if there's maybe a, like you said, for those people, because there's not really a precedent. There's not really like no one comes to you and says, this is how you well, handle let, these let, Let's turn the tables for a second. So like when the Adidas deal came up, yeah. how did you guys know how to structure that? I mean, so... Because that came up pretty early on, right? Adidas, yeah, that came on early. But Adidas kind of has their infrastructure, and that was a 
earlier st- we were at an earlier point and they kind of had this this system in place for like up and coming brands so it was kind of more of like you know luckily we have some great family and friends who we rely on who who are in you know who are lawyers and have seen things like that so you just try to tap them for as much knowledge as possible um, and that was probably one of the more structured deals we've seen where it was like hey this is what the this is what this it looks is our, like. like tier yeah, one package like, or whatever this is like kind of how we're going about these collaborations you know if you guys are interested this is the process and cool. like, this is kind of how it works and then there's obviously you know negotiations for social media and, and right. all of those things which yeah. um, fall into it but I mean I think there's a lot more conversations now like you were saying where it's less defined yeah right when you speak to um you know, uh, each project is different and people will approach you like, Oh, what you did with them. And you're like, well, this is different. You know, we need to have our own conversations. So it's like working from partnerships with Adidas are different from working with new era or working with uninterrupted Mm -hmm. or working with Hennessy. Like all of those partnerships were unique in their own way. And it's kind of, you know, you use what you, or we've used what we've learned from each one along the way to be like, all right, we messed up here. Yeah. We messed up. Now, next time we do a conversation, We know to, to you know ask for this and not ask for that. Right. Um, so it's really just kind of going on, uh, you know, failures. Yeah. And, and learning from them and, and seeing them as more like, you know, education than an actual failure. Yeah. That's really just how we've operated. It's like, all right, we messed up. Next time we're doing better. We're doing this different. And uh, that's what it feels like to me. You know, from just not doing it for that long. No, same. In this space for yeah. two years, it's just you got to keep just learning and asking as many people for information and, yeah. and, and try to go from there. Um, just cause like you said, some people will offer up help in the space who might feel like competitors, but some people are less uh, inclined to do so. So it's really kind of like the wild west, like yeah. you said. And I think the other thing too, is that there's certain, even when an op- when you have an opportunity come up, mm-hmm. whether it's a Adidas or anything, um, you know, it's hard. No deal is appropriately matched. So it's like, you know, if I have something come up, it's like, I, it doesn't necessarily even make sense to get the comp from, you know, Mike yeah. and what they did with yeah. that partner or whatever. So, um, it's really the fucking wild west, but I think the, the message that's important to anyone that's in the position mm-hmm. that is the thing I think that's, that is really important as for creatives to take away from this is to actually be comfortable the, with the fact that there's usually not a precedent. Yeah. And you know, the thing that's tough for, I think the thing that's important besides what we were saying yeah. earlier about having the confidence that by the time they reached, by the time they got in touch with you, you've been kind of ruminating over there for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun to see, I'm sure you've had this too, where it's like, I'll get a text from someone that I know that works at this place or that place. Like, Oh, we just, you're in this yeah. deck and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but by the time they come to you and they come to you with the fucking ominous, like, what do you want to charge for this? You know, they'll make you kind of put something out there first. So well, I, I imagine think- it's even more complicated for you because you're dealing in like we're, you know, we're, we're in clothing. So there's, there's definitely some precedent or like some, you know, prices people are willing to pay to some extent. But with your art, I imagine it's a little bit more complicated when it comes to, you know, your stuff ranges yeah. all over the place, yeah. you know? So I think. It's a little and, unique. Yeah. And I have, you know, the materials I work with are expensive. Of course. And, and they're, they're very time consuming. And I kind of have backed into like um, my own little system of pricing those things out. But it's all on the table because um, at certain times an opportunity will be worth taking a lower price for the look that'll be worth. Of course. Um, and other times you're like, this is where I stick it. This is where I get the check from. Um, Can you speak more to that? Like how you define that? Because I know we deal with that too. I mean, I think everybody deals with that on some level, but I'm just curious 
what that's like for you. Well, listen, may you all it's just you. May you all have this opportunity many times over. Um, it's really just taking a temperature thing, and it's mm-hmm. a lot of times you know it's it's understanding um, it's understanding the. I don't want to get into like fucking like jargon and shit, but like understand the dynamic between like, okay, this is brand X mm-hmm. and I know how big they are. Um, and I know you kind of, here's this, here's the thing that you can't figure out without yeah. going through and taking a couple lumps is how much money this does spend on the whole picture of what they're bringing you in for. Yeah. Um, and this is not to be so, you know, greedy about shit, but it's more just about protecting yourself mm-hmm. and making sure that you're optimizing in every opportunity and that comes your across. worth, I think. Is knowing a, your worth. A, a it's super it important. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's really important. But it's tough because you kind of need to take a, a couple L's to understand, like, oh, fuck, I only charged X for this. And I can, when you're there on the day mm-hmm. on the unveiling or the yeah. activation or whatever, you're like, oh, they spent... Yeah. Ten million dollars on this fucking yeah. thing, and I took you know very little yeah, part of that. Exactly. Um, so I think when you have that experience, or if you know people that have had that experience, you can better gauge the what they've dog-eared for you because mm-hmm. they ask you to give them a number, hoping you'll come in lower than what they've yeah. put out there. But when you di- to diagnose, kind of like figuring that out, um, you know, I've just gotten very honest about um, about everything. It's not about trying to like finesse the system or like mm-hmm. pull a little cheat code. Just be like, look, um, you don't have to tell me what the budget of your side is because I'm not. I'm not entitled to a percentage of that, but here's everything that I need to go into it. And fucking just being transparent about it, being transparent. Yeah. I mean like that's the cleanest way to do anything. Um, and also like having the courage to say no, I mean, and and that's a very, very, I understand that that is a very privileged position to be in, to be able to say no. Um, but it's it's one of the most important things that I've. I mean, that we talk about all the time. Yeah. You know, you and I have had this conversation. Yeah. But it's one of those things that when you realize how to do it, you realize the power of it. Yeah. Like it really is a, a game changer. A game changer for sure. And it's like, may God willing, may you yeah. get to the position where you can say no. I mean, nothing is more um, is sort of like a more satisfying sort of reinforcement of the success of something that you've developed to be able to yeah. say no. Um, but you will find that the second that you say no, mm. everything will spin into your favor because yeah. you have complete leverage. I mean, we just went through that recently on a big project uh, for this past All Star Weekend that I quit three times. And how you quit something three times? Well, because it was like this. You know, they came to me with an idea. I told them what I wanted to do and how much we needed we made our concessions where we mm-hmm. needed to. And as it started to move forward, I was feeling a little uncomfortable with the con- continued concessions. Yeah. And I stepped away from it because I had too many other things on my plate. And again, God, thank God yeah. I had enough things on my plate to be able to step away. But it's like going to a flea market, you're negotiating with the thing. Like mm-hmm. I want this fucking sweater, you know, like I'll give you 20 and they want, want 50 and I say, all right, I'm good. And then I'll go, how about 30? You know? <laughs> So I so I stepped away from that project, and uh, two days later, the agency that I was dealing with called me back, and clearly they had gotten um, 
checked by the client of like, no, we need to work with that guy. So figure it out. And so we did it again and it's happened again and I've quit again and then, uh, and again and again and again. And then, and then we finally got to the position where I was like, look, this is what, this is what I need to do this. And they, they acquiesced. And it's definitely a unique challenge when, when you're working with agencies and partners that you have the middleman and you have the client. This is the other thing that it tells you about. Yeah. yeah, And they're in direct communication, but you're not in direct communication with the client. So it's, it's, there's a layer that, you know, gets added, which makes it even more complicated to, like you said, like reach those terms and, and you know, everything gets passed along. So there's a lot lost in that translation. Um, which is exactly no one no one tells you what that's like until you experience it and no one tells you how to prepare for that yeah. or what the dynamics are of like who's who is reaching out to you for this deal because um you know and maybe this is them this maybe this is the first time anyone's actually hearing that this exists mm-hmm. but it'll be like brand x wants to do this event they'll reach out to agency y to handle everything for them they'll tell all right we've got to have bristol studios do yeah. this thing the agency reaches out on behalf of the client and then you're you're telling them we need 10k then the agency marks it up to 20k and tells the client that they need 20k yeah, you know it's just like the whole it's just a structure you know going on behind closed doors totally. and then you're just trying to navigate the, you know as best as you can right. which is i think like the learning from that is just you gotta you know control what you can control and, and just make the decisions yep. that are, are best for you and saying no three yep. times might be what's yep. best for you to kind of ultimately get yep. get where you need to go to make the project yep. you know, what it needs to be totally um, but at, you know at the same at the end of it all it's like it's our thing yeah and I think that's the biggest gift of it all it's like you know you can get into some uncomfortable situations but they're coming to you to do your thing. And that is hugely flattering and a great honor uh, to have kind of carved out one of those spots because there's not a lot of them. And I think that that's something that's actually a nice reinforcement, despite how stressful it can feel. When a, when a partner comes to you through an agency, do you, and let's say you agree on terms and everything, do you start the storytelling ideation and, and the kind of the activation process then? Or are you do you already have some ideas that kind of float mm. around in your head and you're like, oh, this is the right partner yeah. to do that with, or yeah. this is the right person to do this? Is that kind of this is a, maybe I mean, different? this is a great question. And I think this is an, an incredible question. And another thing that no one talks about that I think is really valuable to consider. For me, I've had a little bit of both. I've had, I've had a client come to me for, we want X. I kind of come up with something for them um, to pitch uniquely for that moment. And we go forward with it or we don't. The other part of the thing that happens is people usually don't have the courage to do something new. So by the time they come to Bristol Studios, by the time they come to Victor Solomon, they say, okay, we saw you do that sweat. Do that for us, but make it a little yeah. bit different so we can say it's unique. Or make a make a stained glass backboard for us uh, with, with the our colors or logo in it or whatever. Um, but they never have the courage to say like, Oh, okay. Let's like, tell us this idea that you want to do or this project that's been haunting you for years that you're trying to realize. And it's, it, I understand the risk averse from the corporate side because they're just middle managers Mm -hmm. and they're overseeing a budget and 
They have all these KPI indicators that they need to hit with the moment and regional bullshit that you have no idea about and and like hopefully you never need to think about. The fun stuff. Yeah, I mean like all and like that's all important yeah. real world business stuff, you know? Um, you know, we're operating in a pocket super lucky to be operating in the pocket where our pursuits are um, you know diff- they're just different there's yeah. no one's not better than the other they're just different we have different things that we're pursuing but so I set the table with all of that to say um, you know I'll have an idea of I want to take this basketball court and I want to fill in all the cracks with this gold dusted resin and replace the backboards with crystal polycarbonate and gold plate the hoops and I try to bring that idea to brand partners, but I've never done it before. They don't know how to visualize it. They don't know how to anticipate its effectiveness or, you know, they start matching, trying to put the code in with all of these um, things that they need to hit. And it's tough for people to process an idea that they have not seen work before. Um, And I'm very sympathetic to that. But at the same time, it can be insanely frustrating when you have a brand that you work with and brand partners that you know and they just can't see the vision. Right. So for me, this, the most powerful thing that I've developed the courage to do is just do your ideas. Um, every time that I've had an idea that I get stuck trying to pitch and you'll just burn yourself out trying to like pitch it to all these people, if you can, just do it yourself. And then people will come back and go, oh my God, like I love that. Do that for us now. Yeah. If you're lucky, but I've been very lucky that that's worked out. So for me, it's like, you know, I think it's easy for, I I think it could be very easy to get caught in the trap of like reactionary creativity where you're doing stuff that you're asked for only. But I think for me and for you as well, I know that you guys feel the same way. You have to push the envelope and you have to challenge yourself to advance the project that you're doing and the ideas that you have. And people will, people will come for you, you know? But you kind of have to, I think we, we always say proof of concept. You know, I think it's when we get stuck trying to push uh, an idea or a project for too long, we're just like, all right, well, people just need to see it. And, yep. and you know, it's not really, if it just sits around in your back pocket or in your head, like, you know, no one is going to ever actually see it. So you have to bring it to life. You yeah. know, it, it might not be on that grand scale that you envision at first in your head, but what does that you know real life version look like that maybe mm-hmm. once you get like once you get some help and you find a partner they, they help you elevate it yeah. and really take it to that place that you know you dream of it to to go totally i mean in the time that i was in san francisco i was around a lot of startup culture and had a lot of friends that were entrepreneurs in that sense and the philosophy is the same it's just bootstrapping yeah. so it's like you can't get someone to buy in until they actually know that it works no one wants to be the first person in the pool or on the train or whatever you kind of need to get some momentum yeah. independently um, and hopefully your idea is something that you can just get started moving um, and I know it's hard because the resources aren't necessarily always there uh, but if you can just start to build some energy um, you will be shocked at how quickly people just jump on the momentum it's funny er, very early on i think this is actually um now that i'm thinking back to it the show that I had in la my friend modi came and he brought uh this guy nico and lamar who work at nike and he was they were great and they still are great I'm guys that i talk to regularly still um and 
you know, I was still trying to figure what the hell was going on with this thing and, you know, whatever. And Nico gave me the greatest piece of advice. He's like, Nike will come for you. Like, just keep doing your thing. Like, Nike's always watching. These brands are always watching. And the, fa- the fact, going back to, like, building confidence, it should give you confidence to understand that everyone is always watching and taking note. And that when the time is right, they'll reach out and it will turn into yeah. something crazy. But, you know, that, I think that's how you know we feel, too. It's just you kind of got to do your thing, put your head down and keep grinding. And if, yeah. if it's meant to be, it'll align and, yeah. and you'll do it. But like you said, there's a there's an extreme challenge in that. Right. There's an extreme challenge in. You know, you want to chase things like your natural inclination is to just chase it, but you realize sometimes by not chasing it, you actually set yourself up for future success more than you think. Mm. Like keeping in touch with people, forming relationships is such a big part of just any industry, but especially in the one that we operate in, right? Or you meet somebody and you never know where that's going to go or lead, and it's not, you don't see that as the goal. You don't see, like, I got to get something out of this person. But just by being kind and yep. having those interactions and relationships, you never know where that might take you, right? So oh. it's that night, you know, so it's Nike, right? Like you said, you don't see that coming, but you just keep doing your thing. And by just being out in the world and, and not being afraid to show your mm-hmm. you know, your vision, it eventually leads you know somebody to, yep. to tap somebody to see it, and then mm-hmm. they reach out. And so I think that's just a you know, such an important point. It's a really a hard thing for people who are just starting so out scary. to to embrace Terrifying. and to, to yeah. work through, like under. Yeah. And I think it's it is only in retrospect that you can under, that you can see the move yeah. playing out. You could never I could never have at at that moment even Nico, Nico who's mm-hmm. high up over there telling me to my face Nike will come. Nike came a month later, but he didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, and this is not about Nike, but yeah. it's just about in general. When you're a sort of independent creative work, working and trying to build a name for yourself, it is fucking terrifying to not know if they are ever going to come. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, let's be honest, they might not ever come. I think all you can do is keep in the same way going back to the sport. Get your fucking shots up. You know, yeah. you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take. Tighten your game up, yeah. and when the time comes, they'll come for you if it's the right situation. You know, um, and I think that's part of what is amazing to be able to look back now and see how it's played out, and then use that to inform what's happening going forward. I think, like what you said, I think is something that's like very underrated and I feel like it is lost on people that are too transactional and thirsty to try to get to some destination Mm -hmm. get to some collaboration or get to some situation that that um they think will get them to the next level and it's just be fucking nice yeah it's like so simple but the guy that you meet here yeah could be there one day and be the person that gives you this opportunity like I'll give you a perfect example of this and I'm sure you have a million as well. Yeah. But I got connected to this guy, Marlon Beck. Amazing guy. He's working at Under Armour. He did the Sour Patch Curry shoe. Mm-hmm. We had a couple calls just trying to figure out if there was something to do at Under Armour. And, you know, nothing ended up panning out there. But kept in touch, you know, social, all that stuff, whatever. Um, I get a note from him. And he's like, hey, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to start working with Ronnie and Kith. Amazing. He's like, what can we do together over there? 
incredible. I could have been a dickhead like, oh, I don't want to work with Under Armour yeah, or, yeah. or that deal didn't pan out. So I'm bitter for this, that, the third. But we just had a rapport and he's an amazing guy anyway. So we just kept in touch. And as soon as he got over there, it's one of the first conversations that we had. So we started setting up this collab and it's coming out in the fall. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think, like you said, that's we always try to take every meeting we can. Like before the pandemic, obviously, um, changed life as we know it but yep. it was always important just to meet people get yep. out there talk to people learn different perspectives even if it you know wasn't for a, a bag or whatever right. you know whatever it was it was just human being yeah just connect you know see what they're about see if there's just like a very basic connection just talk to people and mm-hmm. just learn um, and if there's a deal to be made then that's just the cherry on top yeah but i think like treating people as an end themselves rather than a means to an end is just like one of, again, one of those business practices that you don't need to go to a business school to understand. You really just learn that in the real world. If you are an asshole, it's going to bite you in the Mm -hmm. ass. Like it's going to come back around Mm -hmm. and the word will get out and you might be very successful and you might reach a lot of heights, Mm -hmm. but eventually it's, it's not a good foundation to have under you and it will crumble down. Yeah. I think, um, it's just one of those things that like, you just see it. Yeah. We just see it. We, we interact with it all the time and yeah. you take note of it and it's just, it's wild. I don't know. It, it always surprises me. Yeah. And I think, I think the danger of, of the thing that we're talking about here is I think people are too, and I've been guilty of it myself. Yeah. So it took me learning this, um, from an early moment, but, um, kind of two ideas from the same thing is like if you're so thirsty to just get to something if I just start kicking your door down like hey yeah. let's do a project let's do something like you might I might break you down and just have you go alright fuck it let's do, let's do something yeah. or whatever um, but people want to work with their friends like if and if you have that transactional thirst air about you you can never take that mm-hmm. back first of all um, so you have to be really careful and delicate about how you're navigating the space um, but secondly, people will see it a fucking mile away. And I don't think, I think that turns people off. It turns me off when I start to feel like that coming as well. But it's like, sometimes you'll just meet someone that you are on the same wavelength with, um, you know, and it will reveal itself later to be an opportunity, um, or it won't. And fuck it. That's yeah. fine too. You know, I think that's, that's kind of like it's ironic that we're like breaking down for five minutes like just be a human being like don't be so fucking thirsty and just like things will work out unfortunately the world that we're in requires these types of conversations where people just are forgetting basic human decency well I think it's because the society the moment that we're in has put so much emphasis on entrepreneurship that people are so aggressively trying to like Mm -hmm figure out a deal they don't even care what the deal is they just want to like make People deals just want to make, yeah, you know what I'm saying deals, and, like, be on the and like these maniacs that are like doing podcasts and giving this yeah. like insane business advice like are cultivating one of the worst generations that we're ever dealing with now and it's like you just see these people kind of parroting lemming style this like super aggressive insane business advice that it's just like it might work out, but do you really want to be that person? That's so fucking depressing. Yeah, um, that's a good point. But yeah, just like be a human being. Yeah, it's that's pretty the, the fucking moral easy of to the do. Story. Yeah. 
Um, but getting kind of back <laughs> to the earlier conversation, are there future projects that you know you have in your mind that are like you're saving up till till like the moment is right, like yeah. and you can really do it big? Do you have anything that you're able to share? <clears throat> yeah, or, or like just quickly touch on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like as you're going, you know, we've we've kind of dovetailed into this like fucking business podcast by accident but i think it's important for for you know creatives whether they're in the basketball space or pursuing anything i think this is applicable advice um and for me i think you know i've been able to bootstrap a lot of things going back to that topic that have helped me get ideas out into a platform that will turn into other opportunities but there are certain ideas that are just too big to bootstrap or that just kind of don't make sense to bootstrap um and some of those are coming to fruition now thankfully um one of the biggest ones one of the biggest projects that i've had been pursuing from the beginning of this uh as it started to move was a idea to redesign basketball trophies i think kind of going back and setting the table at large i think that um, I think that sport is really kind of the only clean meritocracy that we have in the world. Absolutely. And I think that that is a really important thing that can bring people together. Like I was talking about being able to, as the Brown kid in Boston, play with the Italian and the Irish and Jewish kids. Like that was important. Mm-hmm. And I think um, once we were all there, you know, get this ball into that hoop more times than they do. It's so clean. And I think that sets the table for such an amazing conversation. And I think it's the only, like in business, in all the other bullshit that we've been talking about in the rest of your life, there is no destination. There's no like, when I get to this moment, I'll have made it and it's great. You can have, you know, money or whatever. You may still not feel satisfied Mm -hmm. in that way. But when you raise that trophy, you've gotten to the destination. And I think that's super important. Um, so I signed a deal with the NBA a couple of years ago, and uh, Mario Laughlin, who's an angel over there, um, our very first meeting, I was like, I want the trophies. And it's not usually not in my experience. <laughs> you knew what you wanted. In my experience, I definitely knew what I wanted. But in my experience, it's usually not good to be so yeah. upfront with your ambitions. Yeah. Um, going back to that thirstiness um, that you can't take back that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't help but just put it out there. And... Um, to, she's a, an angel, like I said. Um, but she was like, "Slow down, let's <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Let's figure it out." So, um, you know, we've been working together for a few years now. Um, they just gave me the contract to redesign all the G League trophies. That's and amazing. Pretty crazy. Um, so we've been working on that for the last year, and we'll be unveiling them. We were scheduled to unveil them in November, mm-hmm. um, but we'll see where the season restarts. Yeah, um, but it's a it's I'm super proud of where we got to creatively, and you know dealing with a huge corporation like that with a product that they're putting more and more energy behind in the G League, um, it was it was a great reward to have had the ambition this entire time and to have built the credibility to basically have. Uh, the team that I'm working with now, Chris Arena, Tawan Watson, um, and a, a few other people um, over there. But those are my two yeah. main guys. And for them to have the confidence in me creatively to say, like, what do you want to do? That's the idea. Yeah. Great. Let's do it. I think that that is uh, an amazing example to even kind of tie up everything we've been talking about, right? Where we talked about 
just working, you know, working on your craft, focusing on what you can control and not really seeing like the end goal and just building Yeah, for you to start really to, to say that your story started really in Boston playing basketball on the playground to, you know, you finding your way into this art and then ending up designing G League trophies, which is probably not something you ever dreamed of doing when you were a kid. Yeah. But it feels very authentic to, to who you are and, you know, things that matter to you. And it, it's like this full circle moment where the G League trophies might not have been a goal of yours, but it yeah. almost in a way is the most perfect thing you could do. Yeah. But I think, I think, um, and it's very kind to hear you say that, um, I think the thing that's important perspective wise to keep on both sides of it mm-hmm. is it's important to have the ambition ahead of you to keep you motivated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had that, that was one of the many ideas that I'm like, one day I want to design this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing to get to the G League trophy, but I want it all, honestly. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice step in the right direction. But I think having the ambition long term is the thing that will help keep you motivated day to day because it's a, it can be very discouraging when you're in the trenches going to war with trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to keep the lights on? How am I going to pay rent? And, yeah. um, and all those realities about being kind of like a independent creative person like we've been talking about this whole time. Um, so it's it's very rewarding to have hit you know this particular tier, yeah. but the destinations continue I, forward. I, I couldn't agree more that it's like, especially I'm sure for you because you have the contract negotiations and you you've been talking about by the time it comes real, you're kind not you're over it, but you're familiarized with it. It the effect is not the same. You know, it's the same thing with like any partnership. From my experience, like everything is so exciting the first time you hear about it, and it's still exciting. No. But the business of these things starts to make it less exciting by the time you like you know see the finished product yeah you're like i've seen it a million times already right. the whole world hasn't seen it yet so they're excited but for you you're like i'm uh, you know i'm familiar with this it's i'm on to the next thing you're 12 yeah. months ahead yeah um but yeah i think it's that ambition that keeps you going where you achieve that which is a great success honestly in, in your path and your journey but you're building. You're yeah. not, you know, it wasn't, all right, cool. I, I did it. I'm done. I'm going to retire. It's like, no, like you have a, a long way to go. And I'm curious to kind of, you know, speak more to that. And if you can talk about your future and kind of where you see mm-hmm. yourself in 10, 15 years and really what you want to build. Yeah. It's a great question. And, um, it evolves every day. You know, I have these kind of big kind of ideas that I'm pursuing and then kind of things are meandering and evolving and you kind of roll with punches as, as they, they come do, yeah. and you figure it out. Um, but there was, I, I forget whose quote it was, but they defined happiness as someone to love something to do and something to look forward to. And I think, uh, if you can have a pocket, but if you can always maintain something in each of those pockets, I think it'll help really keep you sane. But for, for me personally, I think the, the ambitions um, and where the project is going is, um, is developing and getting exciting in, in a lot of different ways. So obviously the G League trophy, like we just talked about, um, I've spent a lot of this time um, kind of thinking about fleshing out the kind of brand that I've accidentally built into something that's a little bit easier for people to participate in. Um, so I just signed a deal with Network, and we're going to start re- releasing edition pieces that are a little bit more affordable and attainable regularly. 
and using that platform to flesh out the aesthetic and the concept of the project into some more wearable and collectible things. So we'll be doing... That's exciting. Yeah, we'll be doing some um, some outerwear and some luggage, um, some accessories. And I have this idea to kind of... Um, in the same way that soccer will release kits, mm-hmm. um, doing that for basketball seasonally. So that's one thing that I'm developing, and that's kind of like a fun thing for yeah. me uh, to explore. Um, I'm going after, again, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I'm going after the 75th anniversary is the season that starts, not this next season, but the season after. So the season that will start, that should start the fall of 21 Yeah, will be the 75th anniversary season. And I think that that's a perfect peg to introduce some new trophies. So In the NBA. For the NBA. Um, we're speaking it into existence here. Yeah. Well, we're giving it a nudge because the yeah. conversations are already starting. Um, and we're figuring it out. But it's a pretty, as you can imagine, yeah. um, there's a lot of people that need to bless that yeah, idea. Yeah, sure. So um, thankfully we're starting the conversations now to get things moving. Um, and you know, the G league project is kind of going to be the proof of concept in a way to show them that I can handle that, which I have no, um, concerns about. Um, so I'm going for that. Um, there is some product collaboration stuff that I mentioned that's going to be coming out. And then, you know, I have this real crazy big dream to build this marble basketball court in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a, a big undertaking. Yeah. And it's one, you know, um, going back, I mean, I've been pitching that idea to brands for four years now. Um, and it's tough because it's super fucking expensive. Um, the idea, just to kind of back up for a second, is the mm-hmm. idea would be to build this playable marble basketball court and drop it in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Where did that come from? What, what in the vein of the, of the Prada store in Marfa, Texas, that, okay. um, that a pair of artists made. And they had this whole conversation about gentrification that they were, that they were doing, mm-hmm. but it ended up becoming this iconic installation that's been there for 12 years or something and people are still taking detour Beyonce's tour took a detour to take pictures in front of it so it's just become this incredible cultural moment so to create something that kind of lives in this unique space that people really kind of go out of their way to interact with yeah and I mean I think that basketball players as a culture I think will seek out Iconic courts, Pagal, yeah. Drew, Rucker, Venice, all these things are like, if you're a hooper, those destinations, destinations yeah. and bucket list spots. And I think just speaking to that pilgrimage that people mm-hmm. will make to go to, you know, how many friends have we known that have gone to Paris and they have to go yeah. to, to Stefan's court? You just have to do it. Um, so I think speaking to that idea of, the platform that can bring people together, the path, the passion with which players will pursue a court and make a pilgrimage to that to celebrate it, um, really just kind of all played into that idea. And then just aesthetically, I think it's like the final boss of what I've been doing, you know. Um, so I've been pitching at the brands for f- four years, and we actually are in a position now uh, where we have a few people that are interested in, so we wow. may actually get that thing off. Wow. Um, so that's been fun, and that's been kind of um, 
an extension of my personal kind of trying to expand into courts. Mm-hmm. I've been doing sort of individual objects, but I've been wanting to get into courts more and more. So, so this dovetails into something we were just talking about earlier with uh, bootstrapping concepts. So I had this idea to create a basketball court that was suspended 10 feet yeah. overhead so you could be underneath it and look up and see people playing overhead. Um, obviously, I don't have the resources to just build that myself. So I hired this 3D designer and we just made renderings and I just put the renderings onto my social and my friend Tyler, who works for Bleacher Report, reached out right away and he was like, that's amazing. Um, How much is that going to cost? Let's figure out how to bring it to life. And, you know, fast forward less than six months yeah. we built it at all-star weekend in chicago that's wow that's a crazy time i have no idea it was that yeah. that quick of a turnaround super fast and i mean probably not healthy to go that quickly uh, but we had the infrastructure behind us um that that tyler brought with uh, bleacher and turner and uh we made an incredible moment and space and um and i think like kind of changed the the tier that's the other this the other part of the thing too it's like when you can get a, a new idea off yeah people realize you can do that like i'm sure for you guys when you did was it hennessy at complex mm-hmm. con yeah i'm sure like people didn't even know that that was possible for you guys i didn't yeah so i'm sure that after that like oh shit they can do more than just make that clothes. was definitely one of those things that we had been like trying to do in you know not necessarily that those specific items but just the you know prove to people that like, hey yeah. we can do a lot like we're not just clothing we can really do everything yeah um and that was like, a beautiful opportunity to, to showcase that and, yeah and yeah now we you know you have that portfolio it's like yeah. these are this is past work and every time you do a unique project it, it adds to that so when you go to the next uh the next concept or next partner mm-hmm. you're like hey we can do it you know yeah. it's not just words it's not just an idea we can execute on it yeah uh, so i think those are again one of the things that like you bang your head against the wall over and over again, and when something finally happens, you you take it and move forward and apply it to any new yeah. opportunities that you, you get. Yeah, and I mean, like we were just talking about a minute ago, it's like no one wants to, no one would look at, or I mean, someone did, but but no one thinks you can do something that you haven't already yeah. proven you can do. Um, so when you're pitch, when I'm pitching something that is like unprecedented. They might like the idea or like the other stuff that I do, but it may be hard for them to understand or comprehend that it's even possible or that I could even do it. Yeah, because you have to help them arrive at that conclusion. Totally. So it's like, may you be so lucky to first carve out a lane that is unique to yourself, that people are coming to you for these sorts of opportunities, yeah. um, but continue to push push yourself to expand into spaces that they may not, a pocket that they may not have put you into. Because I think it can be very valuable to say... Oh, yeah, you like that? Well, I can also do this and this and this and this and this. Um, um, so that's, that was a cool thing to set the table for courts. Uh, I did the Kintsugi court just recently, same yeah. sort of thing. Pitched it to a million people. No one understood it. We just did it, and it went crazy. Um, so now we're talking to some people about doing more of those. And... Um, I have a film project going back to the film thing. Mm-hmm. I have a, this little film project I'm going to do in the off season, just to kind of like take a little, yeah, kind switch of, up mediums, switch a it bit. up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of go back to my first love, and um, I have this idea. You know, Bird and so many players do this, but Bird famously tried to add something to his game every off season. I think it's really valuable to kind of like step out of the pocket you've been operating in, and um, and challenge yourself in a new way, and um, see what happens with that too. Yeah. Well, it all sounds amazing. Uh, that's all I have on my end. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add or any questions or thoughts. 
Um, I mean, like we were just saying a second ago, I was like, I don't think either of us intended for this to turn into the, you know, Jake and Victor entrepreneurship podcast, yeah. but I think it's applicable for, for people in the space. And I think, um, I think, you know, going back to what I was, the genesis of a lot of this stuff, it's like a lot of these ideas are, uh, not unique to business and I think are applicable for an athlete or for anyone really. Um, and yeah, so take from that what you will this podcast is presented by bristol studio sound editing by rashad allen music by james grissom thank you for listening to believe You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.